This is The Unexpected Gurus. Bhavna, this is a chair that I'm incredibly excited to bring to the table today. Richard is someone that I've known since 2018. He was a fellow for the organization that I was working with, Global Health Corps. And I've gotten to know a lot of fellows over the years. I've gotten to build relationships and friendships with them. And even if we don't talk for a really long time, we always have a tendency to pick up back where we, right where we started. Richard is a thousand percent one of those humans and so much more. Our friendship was so organic. He shouted my name from across the hall at Yale the very, very first time he saw me. And we'd been communicating via email up until that point. And he saw me and it's like he recognized an old friend. And that's exactly how I felt when I met him. And he... I can't believe I'm saying this publicly. I don't know if all the other fellows are going to kill me. He is one of my favorite fellows. And it's just because there is so much that I learned from him. Every single time we talked, whether it be during the fellowship or after I left Global Health Corps, and we stayed in touch and we'd go to get French fries at Shake Shack every time he was in town, we would talk for hours. And no matter what, I would walk away feeling a lot more humble because of his humility. He is so kind. He is so compassionate. He's been through a lot in his life. And the humility that he conveys and the empathy that he shares in the work that he does and in his general existence is so powerful. He is a light that walks into the room and you cannot not learn from him every time you speak to him. I'm always glad for any opportunity to chat with him. I'm always glad for any opportunity to give him to share his wealth of knowledge. He, um, his work right now is in um, women and girls development, specifically in the tech sector. And it just blows my mind every time I talk to him to see the amazing work that he's doing to advocate for other people. He's just a good human being. So that is my very long introduction to Richard. I can't wait for you to meet him. I can't wait either. We love a, we love a person who loves good Shake Shack. So that's good news to start off with. But you have mentioned Richard before, just having someone so young with so much experience and so much life lived. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see what he has to say about all of it, how he's kind of processed all of it on his own, and then to kind of see where he is in this moment in time, because I think all of us are are approaching what's going on in the world, especially in the country, um, through different lenses. So I'm interested to see what's going on through his lens. So I'm excited. <laughs> we did it again. <laughs> the very first time that I met Richard, Bhavna, and Richard will laugh because he remembers the story well too. I just remember Richard, you shouting my name from across the room at Yale. We had just met for the first time and there was no formal introduction. There was no shaking of the hands. You just shouted my name. You were like, Mama Da! And I knew so well from that moment that we were going to be friends. And that's the way that we've greeted each other every single time, every time ever since. I, I actually now remember this so well. And actually, now I know the reason why I did that. Before GHC, you were in charge of coordinating emails, visas, like all of these bureaucratic processes. And anytime you sent an email, it was so heartwarming. Mamata would take the time to write you the email. If you need any help, let us know. Only to get to the field and realize that we were 134 something. And this email Mamata was sending was not only to me. It was to everyone. Like, how do you take your time to send such emails to everyone? As if it's so personalized. and. I felt so important for the, not, I wouldn't say for the first time in my life, but the fact that the emails took its time to understand me. So if I should just say cultural competence, I feel like somebody in the other part of the world dealing with a young black man in Ghana who seems not to be organized and is asking like sometimes stupid questions like, and why is this document like this? And I didn't get this. And this person is always taking time 
to reply even to the most basic questions that have obvious answers. And so I was like, when I meet you, <laughs> something I have to do. And when I met you, I was like, look at her. She's, she's... <laughs> it was um, great. Richard, I'm okay. I'm very happy, first of all, that I'm in this interaction. I'm just here. I feel like kind of like a fly on the wall, but I just love that. Richard values your emails as much as I do because before Mamata and I started working together on this, I mean, it was like months ago where I was like, Mamata, your email just gave me life. And it was like a, one of those mass emails, but like so detailed, so organized and so well-worded and, and it goes out fast. Like we have a meeting and everything's there, all the information's there. And I was like, this girl knows how to write an email and she knows how to make it count. Like she, you get a lot of feelings from the emails and she, I, I mean, gosh, there's like not a lot of things that this girl is not good at, but like she can very much like hands down best email writer I've ever met in my entire yes. life. I work at an agency, so I know a lot of email writers, but she's the best. You know, I'm okay with talking about me for the rest of this episode. You guys are really, you're, you're really lifting me up. Here. You want to just go back and forth and tell Mamata our favorite things about her? Cause I think we can cover the whole hour Yes, doing that. Are we good? Okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. Richard, I didn't know that that was the reason why you shouted. And It was. Oh, I'm glad my It's, it's are difficult when uh, people from the global south are applying for visas, applying for programs, and the fact that someone just responds in a way that makes you feel important, uh, that is all that we needed at that, at that moment. And you did exactly that for us. You know, I'm going to say thank you. I'm not good at saying thank you when people give me compliments and I'm trying to be better at that. So thanks for saying all that. That means a lot. And my parents are immigrants. They moved to this country 20 plus years ago and they had nothing. And every day to this day, despite being in this country for 27 years, they are treated like aliens. They're treated like they don't belong. And that's just become exacerbated because of the current political climate and because of everything that's going on in the world. And not to politicize this because being kind to people isn't a political thing. It is a human dignity thing. You should just be kind and open and warm and welcoming to people in spite of differences because it's the right thing to do. And everyone should feel like they have a place to call home no matter where they are. And I've seen my parents struggle with this for so many years. And I think about it now, even recently, just how much sacrifice they had to do in order to give us the life that we have. And I know from you and talking to other international fellows who came from anywhere in Africa, in Europe, in India, to the U.S. to do this fellowship, that's a huge sacrifice. And to do that is so, so brave. And every little thing that I do now, I realize I do it because of my parents, because they've had to just experience a lot. And I never want anybody to feel left out because of the color of their skin or where they're from or, you know, what language they speak. I'm blessed and fortunate enough to already know so much about you and about your life. But of course, our listeners don't know as much about you as I do. So Richard, if you want to take a few minutes just to share a little bit more about your story, your life, your background, anything that you want to share, I think everyone would really love to hear it. Yeah, to share a bit about myself, uh, um, Richard, uh, your average young person um, from Ghana. That's where I was born uh, 29 years ago. Wow, I'm really old now. <laughs> and um, I just, uh, Richard, I grew up in a very like a loving family where I felt my mom and dad wanted to give me the best of education, like they did not have, uh, but they made sure they put me in the best schools, not only me, but my siblings as well. And once I remember in Ghana, we have this tradition where if you don't pay your school fees, you will be sucked out of school. So the, the school authorities come around and those who have not paid, they will ask you to leave the class and go home. And once I, before they came around, 
I left the class in advance because I didn't want that shame of everybody in the class knowing I have not paid my fee. So I left. And then I got home only for my dad to find, ask me, why am I home? And I said, oh, I've been sacked for school fees. And he's like, no, that's not true. Because I had a conversation with the headmaster and we've made an arrangement that I will pay at the end of the month. So it means you left on your own. And I had to confess, yes, I left on my own. And he asked me, why did I do that? And I said, yes, it's such a shame when all the kids see that I'm leaving the class, like my father can pay my fees, blah, blah, blah. And then he looked at me and, uh, in a very regretful mode and uh, sat me down and went for his pay slip, his salary slip. And then I realized that the m- amount of money he received as a man was not even enough to pay my school fees. Yet there were four kids who were in this uh, school. And he told me that if I know what he and my mom have to sacrifice, just for us to be in the schools we are, to get the best of education, that pride will disappear. And that I would, as I would cherish every moment sitting in that class to benefit from an education because this is the price they are paying for. And for me, I reflect on this conversation because it shaped my life. It's very common for African parents. I cannot generalize. It was common for my parents to take a cane and whip your ass if you did something wrong. But that will not change me. That conversation, he could have like disciplined me with a, with a cane for stepping out of the class for silly pride, but he spoke with me. And since then I have grown up with this humility, which has helped me in many ways. And so I finished with my primary school, went to high school. Unfortunately, during my high school days, that was when my dad passed out and uh, may he so rest in peace. But I'm proud that he did provide me with enough understanding of the world or enough knowledge as a young man on how I should also live my life. And so I'll say throughout my life, I've been someone who believed that if I wanted something, I could get it if I worked hard for it. And I, and that's what I've done after school, after high school, I went to the university to study um, a bachelor's in communications. I was also part of a group called Curious Minds. It's a children uh, youth group in Ghana where we do a lot of advocacy work. And this organization also opened up a new life for me in terms of knowing that young people could make change, speak on behalf of other young people. So during my high school and university days, I was also an, an advocate in Ghana. Let me put it that way. I would not say a recognized one, but then at least already at the age of, uh, in 2006, I attended my first Child Rights International Conference in Canada. And in 2007, I was already part of the United Nations General Assembly Special Session for Children Plus Five. And I was just 14, 15 years by then. And so that is a quick jump from my journey, but it shows the amount of work that went on in my life between the years of 10 to 15 years that even gave me like the confidence to speak in the, to leaders, to government leaders, and to even articulate my thoughts. Sometimes as a young person with curious minds, I had the opportunity to visit rural communities in Ghana. And for the first time, not someone said, I saw for myself how young people, girls were dropping out of school because they were pregnant, they didn't have any life choices, and that was the end of their life. There were uh, young people who were being abused, or issues of child labor. And so my early ages was shaped by all of these different experiences. And so growing up, yes, I was passionate about some of these topics. I also had early opportunity to travel outside of Ghana to see that other young people were actually making change, like leading some of these issues. And so I thought I can also do the same back in my country. And so since then, it's just been on and on. Joining Kiosk Minds, finishing my bachelor's, working as a journalist for a TV station where I was involved in reporting developmental stories like issues on maternal health and all of the stories. And then eventually I realized I think I could serve a much purpose, better purpose if I find myself in the NGO civil society sector because I love media, but I realized that uh, I was a bit naive. <laughs> so I did... I was really broken when I did one story on uh, maternal health in Ghana. It took more than like 10 days to like even book interview, talk to people. And then it never went on air because there were other important items like politics, entertainment that were given airtime. And as a young man who just completed journalism school, I was so excited. I thought everybody wants to hear about poverty, maternal health, but Obviously, that was not the case out there. And so I, I found myself shifting to the civil society sector where I worked for IPAS Ghana for a period of one year. And I also did some work with restless development between 2015 to 2017. And uh, that involved uh, working with um, women in rural areas in Ghana on issues of maternal health and also doing a bit of research on young people and where they get access to information on their sexual reproductive health and rights, uh, you know, and how we can better provide services.
And so that work began between 2015 and 2017, ended, Rested Development funded that project. It did end, but uh, yours truly <laughs> wanted to do more. <laughs> so <laughs> I still took up the project with my colleagues and um, still went to those communities to continue our work. And we felt that we needed to document what we've done to influence policy. And it worked somehow. We're able to document a lot of the work we've done. We submitted abstracts on our own attended conferences in Ghana. And somehow we got invited to some dialogues where some of our data were accepted into, them, into some policies. And in 2018, I saw this uh, global festival for action, the first Sustainable Development Goals Awards organized by the UN. And they were looking for young people across the world who were making some change, blah, blah, blah. So I submitted my application. And uh, yes, out of over thousands of applications from all over the world, I was fortunate to be selected as one of the seven young people globally who are impacting change on the sustainable development goals because uh, our work, my work with my colleagues, John and Abigail uh, and Okoama, made us bring the voices of women and girls who ordinarily their voices would not be heard into policy making processes. And when I say we brought their voices, it didn't mean we carried them in the bus to some conference, but through our surveys, through our dialogues, through our focus group discussions, we gathered their views and opinions, documented them, and then made sure those things fed into decision-making processes. And so their voices were not missing, their concerns were not missing. And so, yeah, once in 2018, I was invited to Bonn in Germany, where I was privileged to get this uh, the UN award. And after that, I asked myself, what next? Uh, I wanted to explore the global landscape. I've always wanted to, and that is where the Global Health Fellowship in the United States came along. I applied for the fellowship, Again, I think there were over 5,000 applicants, I don't know, and just 137 of us made it, and I was one of the fortunate ones to make it into that program. And yeah, since then, I've always continued to push when I can, even when I felt tired, stressed, and wanted to leave the advocacy space. I had realized I have gone too much into it that uh, I cannot leave, not because I do not want to leave, but if I look behind, I have created a certain path that I did not even realize, like friends that I have, they tell me I have impacted, people that look up to maybe the work I do, feel inspired that the young man that they were growing up with, going through the same struggle with, you're making something out there. And so I felt like, okay, it's also not just about me, but the work I do impacts a lot of people. And so I continue to feel inspired to continue in this place. And wherever I find myself, I do you know, try to put up my voice, not because I have to, but because I'm also in a privileged position because not all young people have the platform that I do have. And if I have it, I also have the responsibility to speak out and to, you know, call out injustice when I do realize them and to make sure that uh, young people are served better. Thank you, first of all, for sharing all of that, all that you did, you know, all of the personal moments that kind of formed who you are and how you decided to start taking next steps and becoming an advocate. And all of this is super humbling. <laughs> and I think it's, it's so beautiful to hear your story and how you were able to really channel that idea of if I can, if I want to do something, I can do it with hard work. This, this concept of humility and like almost removing the sense of pride. How has that really helped you drive um, I guess, motivation or intention for all the advocacy work that you do? I would say it's, it's played a very important role in my journey as an advocate, because first I will acknowledge that, yes, it's Richard, it's me. I won a UN award in 2018. I get to travel and be in international conferences. I get to hold a microphone. I get to speak. I get people to say, wow, you're good. But behind all of that, it's been people and individuals who saw me, experienced me, and thought that you have something and we want to push and support you. And that has been what I would say, if humility and what has helped me like in my advocacy journey, it's, it's me on the platform, but it has not been about me. It's about people who supported me and these people found something in me. And that was the fact that I feel that growing up, there is enough opportunity for everyone there is enough room for growth. There is enough room for everyone to be who they are. But who supports you, who helps you, who pushes you? It's the friend who takes coffee with you. It's the director of a big organization who saw you. It's, it's everyday people around you. 
and someone will basically say, I'm inviting you to this event. I want you to join this program just because they have seen something in you. And that is what I would say, it's, it's the humility factor. There are ways when you, you can try to push yourself in places. You can try to like work hard and achieve things, but that will be you alone trying to do things and get into spaces and get things done. But when others see something in you, that is the magic. Because if I was on my journey alone, what can I do as one person? I did not I have traveled to over 20 different countries. I did not have to book a flight ticket. I didn't have the financial means to book those tickets. Someone saw something in me and said, I trust you to speak at a conference and funded me. It was not me. It was someone who helped me. So basically, I would say humility has helped in the process because as an individual, you can believe in yourself that you can do it and think that you don't need anyone. But that means you are alone and you have to go through all the stages and achieve what you have to achieve. It's possible if you have the financial backing, if you have 100% energy every day. I don't know. It's possible. But if 10 other people can identify that you have something good, that means you have 10 other people pushing you. And I think that is what has helped me in my journey. People always at one stage helping me. And I remember I've had a number of conversations with uh, Mamata during the fellowship. It's not, I'm not speaking as if everything was figured out and I knew what to do. There were times I was scared. I didn't know what next steps looks like. I was freaking out. My mental health was really bad because I was so much thinking, I was so much in anxiety. But behind all of that, I realized that since 15 years, since my advocacy journey, it's never been me figuring things out. It's been a divine power, maybe let me put it that way, of friends, colleagues, someone who says, Richard, I know of this, would you apply? I've seen this, do you want to do it? It's actually never been me figuring things out, it's people. So why did I have to sit down and be so anxious and thinking so much about the next step when all previous steps has not even been about me? So that helped me to like now keep my sanity <laughs> And of course, I have to think and plan, but knowing that the journey has always, it, 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 it comes if it has to come. Not my thinking and worries will bring anything. In fact, it has never brought anything. Can I ask you an existential question? You probably already answered it in everything that you just said. Do you believe that every little thing happens for a reason? I do. I do. And... There has been times that I wanted to doubt. I have been proved wrong over and over again because everything happens for a reason. And I do believe that. There's, um, there are 10 principles in our meditation practice. And the fifth one is my favorite, which is that miseries are divine blessings. And I often have to remind myself of that because to your point one, I do believe that every little thing happens for a reason. I also believe that those tough, challenging moments happen to help us grow, but we spend so much time looking at them as hindrances or obstacles or things that are happening to us as opposed to things that are happening for us. And the second that I've started working a little bit harder to revamp my perspective on some of those more quote unquote negative situations or those challenging circumstances, not only is it easier to overcome them and become stronger because of them, but it's also become easier to um, be positive irregardless of what's going on and to know that every little thing is happening for my growth. And for you especially, I think about this in terms of shifting to the States in 2018 when you came here for your fellowship and that was not an easy time for you. And I know that. So I'd love to know from the perspective of a millennial immigrant, what that experience was like for you to come here to the States and try to absorb what you thought was gonna be the uh, American culture and the uh, you know American way of living. And then I know that you had a massive culture shock and it wasn't at all what you thought it was gonna be. It was like the... Uh, this movie, uh, Coming to America, <laughs> uh, where I'm happy, excited. My entire family is like, yay, you're going to the U.S. And I was also really excited. And uh, yeah, arriving for my fellowship. I think I, for me, it was a, a one-time opportunity for a young person and like everybody looking for an opportunity for an international organization. 
and I had an opportunity to work with PAI in DC, Washington, DC. My workplace was maybe like even 15 minutes walk maybe to the White House. It was such a, a great professional experience for me to learn, to grow, to acquire new skills, perspective. I would say my fellowship in the US provided me all of that. On the other hand, it taught me such a valuable and great lesson, which I hope will continue to live with me for the rest of my life. Because maybe, I think for a lot of young people or people out there, we, we put a measurement to success, we put a measurement to happiness, and we put a measurement to like everything. And so for a lot of other young people, like traveling to the States, working in a, a big organization that's like, that's working in different African countries was the benchmark. I arrived. I was working. I felt important. I was traveling even within my work. In my first week, I arrived in the U.S. in July. And by the end of July, my first assignment was actually to travel back to Ghana to work with people I had worked with before. And they were shocked because I left barely two weeks. They met me in a workshop and I was introduced as working for an organization in the U.S. And they were like, when did you even leave here? Where are you working? I would say professionally, it was great. But personally and experience-wise, I realized that what I thought five years ago, so I came to DC in 2018. Five years ago, let's say in 2012, 2011, I would say all I wanted was that once I arrived in a stage like working in the US, I would be fine. I would not want anything. And that would be the measure of success for my life. But I was completely wrong. For the first time, I, I began to develop perspective on what life means for me and what happiness means for me and what success means for me. Because I had opportunity, opportunity to work in a great organization. I traveled. I, I, was, I was ticking all the boxes that a lot of books tell us to take to be successful. Yet inside of me, I wanted more. I felt I had not arrived. Like there were people who saw me or like, wow, Richard, you've done a lot. In Ghana, you've got a UN award and you are here. And in me, I, I was like, I felt empty. There were days I'm like, what am I doing? Traveling, going for this workshop. Like, what is my own life? What is my process? I have colleagues who just finished school. They found a job. They married. They have kids. I think they have a meaning for their life. And for me, I'm just running all about, what am I doing? And so I felt really, yeah, there was this pressure of nothingness. And that took a, a different toll on me. It brought different behaviors, attitudes that I... I was not proud about because I was trying to fill that emptiness, that void. And it was through talking to different people, some mentors, and um, that I began to realize that there is a void. And that void is that I got to a place where I thought it should be a measure of happiness and success. But internally within me, I was not peaceful because I always wanted more. And so that was my shock in the United States culturally, that people, the measure of success is to work hard, do more, like you have to tick certain boxes. But at least for me, that was not happiness for me and so that really it affected me a lot but also to go around I was there for a fellowship I received like some kind of I received accommodation a health insurance a monthly stipend but then I also went to some communities predominantly black communities and I was shocked to also like realize what I saw because I was like wow like this is not a movie I'm watching these are people they are citizens and this is their life and even as a black person, yeah, the, the disparity was so huge. It also made me realize maybe it's not where you stay that matters. It's who you want to be, what makes you happy. Because there are even people in the United States who are still going to hardship. They are facing all the problems that I can also face if I live in Ghana. So it's, it's not about that dream of traveling or living abroad or doing all of this important work. And so my big shock and my learning was about finding self-worth and self-happiness. And that meant that I stopped measuring my success by my professional development. And I started measuring my success by what made me happy and what made me fulfilled and what made me just feel normal let me put it that way that does not mean i didn't care about work or like progress but i did not wake up thinking about putting 100 percent of my energy into how am i going to get to the next step what am i going to do because i, I could be better than that and that meant i focused on my self-awareness trying to find what makes me happy and i realized that it's the little things connecting with people spending time with friends family you know and just accepting this, that it is what it is. Like, I can't change much. Uh, whether after my fellowship opportunity, 
I, had, I didn't have a job immediately. I have to take a break for like six months or one year and go home. It is what it is. Take a break, go home, relax, enjoy the time with family, friends, and then you figure out the next step. But there was this pressure on me. I see if someone had provided me with a ladder and I have to keep climbing. And at some point, if I get tired, I am not allowed to hold on and even take a breath because people are down there saying, you have to keep moving, boy. And I'm like, no, I had to stop caring about those people. And it's like, I'm tired, I'm on the ladder, allow me to rest. If you want to pass, I give you where keep going, but I need to take a break. And that just gave me this peace of mind. And for me, that was really important. I would never have learned this if I didn't travel to the state. Of course, there, was, there, was, there were also issues of racism. Boy, yes, a lot of them. But can you imagine that I did not even have the cultural, is it cultural understanding? I did not have the understanding to know when people were even being racist towards me. I just kept smiling because, yeah, I was in, a young black man, I'm in the state, and even when people said certain words or certain phrases or use certain things on me, I felt like, yeah, white people giving me opportunity and I have to be smiling and being happy. I did not realize when people were literally dehumanizing me and saying mean words. And I think it took a number of GHC sessions or some awareness for me to look back and realize that, wow, certain things people said to me, certain words they use, I regret smiling back at them because I gave power back to them. I did not even show a tiny indication that I understood what they did and I was not happy. I smiled back. It was not great. And so that really inspired me to also raise my voice and to speak up. And now I do it with all pride because I have nothing to lose. And I know that my success, my future, what I will be, what I will do, it's not dependent on, I would say, any human being, but not to say that I'm not, one pet, someone cannot make me. It's people who offer help to me. That is great. But I will not be silent or I will not be bullied into keeping quiet because of fear of losing an opportunity. Before I would have done that. But now that is not me anymore. But I also think it's me because I have experienced racism to a certain level. And so that embodies me to say, like, even when I want to keep quiet, my body language will not keep quiet. <laughs> so you see that I want to say something. And so that was for me a big realization. And uh, I will not mention names, but even some of my other fellows, African fellows who were in the States, we sometimes had to sit down and have conversations. And we realized we're all facing similar problems, but we couldn't voice out. And we tried to make jokes and laugh over them just to like heal. But uh, I think at the end, most of us realized that what matters is to be at a place where you are loved, where you are appreciated and where you can just be yourself worth, you know? Of course, I always say the important thing in life, I think it's different if you don't have money to buy food. It's different if you are sick and you cannot afford healthcare. There are some basic necessities that you need to survive. But once you have passed that stage, a lot of things don't worry about. Life goes and comes. And I think that is how I live. And I think once you also live by that, opportunities do come your way without realizing it. You don't actually have to struggle and fight for them. Because again, by living that life of humility and just realizing what success means to you and understanding what happiness brings to you, it reflects in your way of life. It reflects in how you speak. And that in itself will just create paths for you than assuming a ticking box of success that you need to achieve and putting pressure on yourself for some people, but it, it doesn't work for me. And I'm glad I realized that at an early age. Yeah. Richard, first off, I just want to say thank you so much for so beautifully answering that question and, and diving into a lot of different pockets of topics that relate back. I do have one more question that I want to ask you. Well, it's two, two actually. So you brought, you brought up the topic of race and right now in the U.S., um, we have this Black Lives Matter movement that's been growing over the past few years. And honestly, only recently did we real, we got exposed to a similar push in Nigeria with SARS. And so for us, we, we sometimes sit in this little pocket of the United States and we forget about what's going on, but, but this is a global movement. And so not only have you been involved in advocacy in multiple different ways, but you also are a black man. And so first, my first question is, how are you feeling in this time and how are you? And then my second question would be, 
in your experience, from your perspective, what do we, what do we do next? I think the first one, um, in the beginning of all of this demonstration movement as a young black man, it was an awareness for me, first of all, to realize the type of world we live in and to face some realities and not be naive. And that awareness was like very heavy on my heart because for the first time I dedicated time to watch documentaries. People were sharing like documentaries, uh, articles to read, to really understand the depth of racism against black people. And I took time, I invested time in reading a lot of that from education to international advocacy to international development funding and to even reading from people I know personally who work for international organizations, sharing their experiences, people I looked up to. I have been a young leader for Women Deliver. I'm now an alumni, and I have been to two, three different Women Deliver conferences, and I've had the amazing Laurie, uh, a mixed black, uh, black American woman. Amazing, amazing. When I was a young leader, she supported over 200 of us, just like my mother sending emails, making sure we are fine just to see her on Twitter expressing how she was treated because she was black or how she had to defend that she's qualified and justified. Not only her, but seeing series of people share their experience, I was like, hey, look at me, I'm black. These are people I aspire to be like. These are people who have my color and they are in positions where I want to be. And this is how they are being treated. Where is the future for me? Like all this advocacy, all of this equity, human right, where is it going? And I was really shocked. That realization took a big toll on me. And so at some point I had to cut off reading and watching all of these documentaries. Because I even watched a documentary on, uh, about a young black man in the UK who was a bank manager. And the police had to stop him one day to just ask him why he was driving the car he was driving, why he had a watch he had. And so they put, they started a whole investigation on him. Eventually, it was racially influenced, but he lost his job building a career as a bank. So I was questioning myself a lot. And that also impacted me as a young black man in international advocacy. I was beginning to think all oh, these international organizations full of old black men, women who have been funding, supporting me, saying all of these beautiful words. What happened? Did they mean those words? Do they mean it when they say, thank you, Richard, for representing, we needed someone from the global south? Did they mean they needed a black person to be there so they feel better or they really care about a black person being there? And then I began to reflect experiences when I had had to travel for international organizations. They gave me per diems and then they would be like, don't buy this, don't do this. Would they have done that to a white person? Was it because I was black? Did they think that I should be fortunate for them providing me a platform? When it's actually because of me that they say they care about the global south, it made me think about a lot of things. And so I had to take time to absolve the information, what was going on, and I shifted my reading to what can we do to take action. And I realized there are a number of resources that we can take action programmatically. And I have done that. I am part of a few youth-led initiatives, and I'm also happy, for instance, Women Deliver is undergoing some transformation, and they've asked young leaders to provide feedback. And one of the feedback was that, see, young people, we are taught how to advocate for, like, gender equality. We are taught how to advocate for... Who has ever taught a young Black man how to advocate for racial equity? Nobody. Literally, we go for all these conferences, and nobody is talking about disparity in race. So now I think programmatically, I'm beginning to influence different organizations that I'm part of. And just a few days ago, one of the organizations that I'm part of, we submitted a whole like paper with recommendations to what has to be done. Because it's time that each person stands up. And it's time that Black people, we begin to realize that. I think we have realized it anyway. But this is the momentum. We have to fight and we have to push. Only thing is that people do not want to unlearn what they know and people are not ready to relinquish their privilege and power and they are not willing to accept that there are power dynamics and what they say and what they do impact people in different ways. And so understanding the position, the intersectionality of someone helps you to know what to say and what not to say. And people have to learn. And for me, this is the approach I'm using in different organizations that I'm part of. To reflect about this, I know it's difficult, it's, um, but it's also pushed me back. So not long ago, I was invited by a, a Black American community 
to share my experience as a young black man who was also in the US and experienced different form of racism. And I acknowledge in that meeting that <laughs> usually I would be, my first priority would be to attend all of these meetings with all of these old white people who fund me and provide me opportunities. I have never even dedicated my own time to sharing my experiences within the black community. And that is something I'm doing more now, that if there are programs dedicated to young people, black people on racism, I'm like, they don't have to invite me. If I can send an email and share my experience, I'm gonna do that. Because we need a lot more people to begin to speak up. If we do not speak up, then we normalize a lot of these things. And it's time we begin to tell people who come into Africa to work, it's not enough to say, I'm white, I'm here to help you. You are not here to help me. It's not enough to say, yes, uh, and we are the experts, we are coming to provide you with expertise. No, you are not here to provide me with expertise. You are here to support and to see how we can work together. It's time we just have to challenge a bit of narrative. Even when it comes to employment, people don't recognize that because of a university they attended, because of a power invested career, that's why they have a job. But my lived experience, you can never compare. Yet you need my lived experience to make your project complete, but you do not want to respect my lived experience as a black person. And I think this is the way young black people, we have to begin to like challenge the, the, the status quo. And it's very unfortunate also what is happening in Nigeria, because someone said that if black people are not safe in their own continent, how can they even be safe somewhere else? I am not in a position to call, say that it's a field leadership. I don't have the authority in my mouth or a profile to say that it's a field leadership. But what is happening in Nigeria without appropriate response from authorities to even preserve the lives of young black Nigerians who are simply asking for dignity. It's, we ask the question, what does the future hold? At home, we are not safe. In abroad, we are not safe. And it, it saddens my heart to even see that on Twitter, Nigerians are calling on international organizations, are calling on international media organizations, are calling for the e are calling for international institutions to speak when the African Union, when the black community itself is quiet. Like on one hand, the power dynamics we are like the, we are calling on the oppressor to come and save the oppressed. I don't know how to put it. So it's it's very sad. But again, there is there is a light at the end of the tunnel because a lot of young people are becoming aware. A lot of young people are realizing that we don't have to keep quiet. A lot of young people are saying that we need to get into positions of decision making enough is enough we would speak out we will find ways to vote we would find ways to influence policies we will find ways to get into the place of power because that's the only way we can also make change and that is why i'm also glad to always share my experiences with different uh, black american communities or also with other young people growing up in ghana they have questions sometimes you have people send you facebook messages like oh this and before i'll be like yeah i cannot i don't have time to reply blah 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 but this is the time I'm also dedicating my time to like also reply to messages. The last time when we did an Instagram live with Mamata, a number of followers have been like sending messages and one young man, Raul, like, oh my God, I'm so happy he asked so many questions. And my first response was like, there will be times I will take a lot of time to reply, but know that I read your message, I see them and I will reply to you. And so sometimes when I've not replied for three, four, five days, he's fine. And when I have time, I reply him in bulk and he's so happy. And so these are some of the things that I'm also channeling my energies into, and it makes me happy. Because I'm also like investing into another young person. And this is why I get opportunities from. You never know, he would also, someone will be speaking to him and be like, I know this young guy, Richard. And this is how when we show love and you show humility, you are one, but you have five, 10 people who are like speaking about you to some other people. And so for me, for Black Lives Matter, this is the right time. We need to put for system, push for systemic change, but also programmatic change in international advocacy, hiring, hiring, decision-making, funding. I'm hearing organizations say, we don't have resources to implement uh, anti-racism. You don't have what? Every single activity you have in your budget concerns race. If you look at every single thing you are doing, implementing policies from a racial lens, and you tell me you don't have the funding, then you don't even believe in your principles as an organization, because there cannot be human rights without racial equity. There cannot be funding for women's rights without racial equity. Literally, there can be nothing without racial equity, but how did we even miss this? Because the power and the privileged ones and the oppressors will not talk about it.
But now that we have realized it, and so for me, I'll raise, up, I'll raise my voice anywhere I find myself. Hopefully we have not gotten to that point where raising your voice will put you in prison or we are not in a, an autocratic state where someone will censor what you put on Facebook or Instagram or, you know. I know I'll hear good news come November, so we will not get there. <laughs> We have a responsibility to ask the right questions. We also have a responsibility to educate ourselves. And I think conversations like these are the way to educate ourselves, to make sure that we're doing the work to understand what we can do to advocate for anybody who's being oppressed, to make sure that we are being empathetic and cognizant of what the issue is and advocating for it in the way that is needed for those who are oppressed, not in the way that's needed for, for us to feel better about ourselves or to make it seem like we're checking off all the boxes of what a, a proper uh, advocate looks like. So I think everything that you've just shared, not only about the Black Lives Matter topic, but everything that you've shared over the course of the last hour and a half about your life and your journey and taking things in stride has been so informative and important. And it's resonated so deeply with me because it's lessons that I know I needed to hear today. And I as always, whether it is us over Shake Shack eating french fries or we're on Instagram or on a platform like this or we're sitting in the back of a conference hall eating salad together, thank you for helping me to learn and for opening up my eyes and for making me see the world in a way that I probably wouldn't have seen the world if it hadn't been for a conversation with you. So Richard, you're incredible. Thank you. I. I feel so grateful for you. I am grateful for you also, both of you, for having me. I'm also grateful to be able to share with your, the two of you and to your audience. And yeah, I hope we find time to do this more. And yeah. Well, Mamata, honestly, I don't really even know where to start with Richard because, my goodness, he gave us so, so much wealth in terms of knowledge, in terms of experience, and he really has lived a lot of life. And you can tell by the way he just verbalizes his experiences that every single thing that he's been through has made a deep and meaningful impact on him. And he's really ready and has been ready to do the same, I think, for the majority of his adulthood, even in his youth. And so I'm really called to one specific um, story that really translated into the entirety of his experience that I felt was really striking was the way he had a shift from looking at his sense of self uh, and maybe pride or ego and really turned on this, this idea of humility and like being humble as you approach other people. Uh, because everyone has something to offer. And so I think that's such a valuable lesson to learn, period, but to learn at such a young age and to really let that translate through your entire work. I don't think a lot of us know what we're meant to do at the age of 15. And it's not that he necessarily knew, it's that he grew into it because as he said, people kept giving him those opportunities. It takes a very special, very kind person to do that kind of work with humility. And yes, he was given so many different opportunities by incredible people who saw something in him. And I can understand that. That has happened to me a lot in my life, and I'm sure it's happened to you too. But he fundamentally is just a good human being, someone who takes a look at life and says, okay, this is challenging. Fine. It's happened for a reason. I'm going to work through it. It's going to help me grow. And I can't wait to help someone else because of what I've learned. Those kind of people are few and far between. And so to have someone like Richard in our sphere just feels like such a blessing because he's like a sponge that I wanna keep wringing out because of all of the, the lessons that I'm sure that we're gonna take away from him. So I'm glad you got a chance to meet him. There's one other thing, Mamata, that I really wanted to call out because this is something that's really like, it rung in my brain as soon as he said it and it's kind of just been ringing since and so, 
I'm not really sure how to approach it, so maybe you can help me break it down. But he said, we are calling on the oppressor to save the oppressed. And I think that makes me take a moment to look at where I am and what role I kind of serve, um, because I really do care about making a change um, in whatever capacity I can in whichever environment I'm in. And so I want to make sure that I'm not trying to save anyone. You know, I don't ever want to fall into that category of saying like, here I am to help you. And also to look at if in an area where I feel like I'm in a, in a situation where I'm feeling marginalized, how do I then take any activism into my own hands um, while gaining support, but not necessarily asking someone else to come in and, and pick up work for us? I don't know if that makes, you know, if, if that's translating, but maybe you can help me break it down. It makes sense because it's something that he said that I have been thinking about a lot too. I think a lot of us want to think that we are being advocates or allies when sometimes, whether it's subconsciously or consciously, it's more performative. Or sometimes while our intentions might be pure and good, they're actually quite selfish because we want to make sure that we are doing everything that we can so we can feel good about ourselves, to make sure that we are going to sleep every night feeling like we've done the right thing by other people. In that process, we're not seeing what those who are oppressed actually need. And what his comment made me realize is that I have a lot more listening and learning to do. I have a lot more questions that I need to be asking, but it's not in some small percentage, it's for my benefit so that I can do the right thing by the people who need support. And I have been thinking about that and I'm trying to break it down for myself too, to better understand how, what is needed in this moment. I don't want to keep using the word I in this context because then I feel like I'm defeating the purpose of what he said. So it is making me think I don't have a full answer for it yet. But I think Richard and other people in our lives who are in these positions can guide us in a way that we have the right knowledge that can also encourage us to do the work on our own. I really like this approach. And maybe it's not about breaking it down completely because we don't really have all the answers here. I think this is a good step in the right direction because this opened up my eyes and my mind to a lot more things that are going out there and how... I can best support, but maybe it's not my place to solve. It's my place to support and solve. And I think what we can start doing is having these discussions and finding small ways to support. I agree. There's a lot more work to be done. And the more we can continue conversations like this, I think the better. You've been listening to another episode of The Unexpected Gurus, co-hosted and produced by Bhavna Krishna Ramesh and Mamata Venkat. A special, special thank you, as always, to the incredible Brian Jones for our amazing theme song and for all of the audio support. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in each and every week. We can't tell you how much we appreciate it. You can subscribe to The Tug Podcast on Spotify and other podcast streaming services. And guess what? We're finally on Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, like, comment, and follow along with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're taking a guest break next week, but you'll hear from us next Wednesday as we share our immediate reactions to the 2020 presidential election results. Please remember that your voice matters. Your voice does count, and your vote is always important. See you next week.